1: Hey, Church Planner, this is Pete Mitchell. And this is Peyton Jones. Here for a special edition of the Church Planner Podcast. We've got a uh, guest on today that we've actually had this guest before. It was our uh, lowest rated show, so we're hoping for a better turnout this time. <laughs> actually, that's not true at all. Peyton, we got a
2: lot of feedback on that last episode, and uh, it was really cool, man. It was, it was cool to see how many people... I appreciate Frank, he is a renowned author, he's a speaker, he is a church planner, and he is one of the prominent leaders of the missional church movement, the house church movement and the organic church movements. He's got a number of books under his belt. He's got Reimagining Church, Pagan Christianity, The Untold Story of the New Testament Church, and From Eternity to Here, as well as other titles as well. So, Frank, welcome to the show. Great to be on again.
3: I always appreciate uh, lowering your ratings. Somebody's got to do it.
1: (laughs) Actually, we do pretty good at keeping our ratings low ourselves. So, No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Well, you know, if you have high ratings, it kind of goes to your head.
3: So you have to have someone like me to drop them.
2: Uh, we, we, we actually, like Pete said, man, I, I, I think we lose more people every week than we gain by uh, most of our annex. So it's, uh, Very really good. Well, I like
3: exist we, for your spiritual transformation, so very <laughs> happy to hear the good report.
2: Well, Frank, we, we want to talk to you about one of your books, and I'm going to hold off on the title for a second and kind of tell the story. We had done a giveaway, which was uh, $500 worth of church planning books, and it was uh, thirty of, and the, you know, this is totally self-appointed. It was thirty of the top, what we considered the top church-planning books. And uh, we've worked with you before, and you you just floated to us, "Hey, have you seen my book? Boom, boom, boom." And I, I remember, oh yeah, I have seen that, but I haven't read it. And so, our list was limited by what I had personally read. You sent me this book, and I gotta tell you, it blew my mind. I read this thing and, and it takes, I'm not saying this in an arrogant way, but it takes a lot to blow my mind because I read a lot of what's out there. Um, but this book, I felt like how have I never read this book before? It's called Finding Organic Church. And you know, I was just telling you Frank before the interview that this is on my top. If it's not my number one favorite church planning book right now, it's definitely in my top three. It's, it's like Empire Strikes Back. Uh, Return of the Jedi and, uh, Pete's going to hate me for saying no, this, but if you say it, you're out. Revenge of the Sith. That was a good one. I just got to <laughs> say it was good, but, uh, but it, it's my top three, man. And I, I got to say this book, I don't even know what the other two, it may just be number one. Let's just do that because <laughs> I found myself going, man, this is the church planning book needed to be written finally i've got this book here that mm. shows guys how to do first century style church planning so frank i i want to ask first off why this book
3: well first i appreciate the kind remarks It's always good to hear i wrote this in 2009 or at least it was published in 2009 so you know here we're in 2014 and that's that adds to the encouragement um so i'm humbled by your comment but Very, very happy about it as well. I wrote it for several reasons. Um, In 2008, George Barna and I wrote a little red book that you know about entitled Pagan Christianity, which was a deconstructive book that called into question virtually everything we do as Protestants and evangelicals uh, that goes by the, the term church. Um, So it was a a historical book looking at the origins of our our modern church practices, so to speak. And it was very controversial, but it was only one part of a conversation. It was the first part of a conversation. Uh, Several months later, I think it was six to eight months later, eight months later, I think, um, I came out with Reimagining Church, which was the construction... Side of the conversation, you know, um, pagan Christianity tore down, reimagining church built up, and what I did is I made a case for what at the time I called the organic expression of the church, which is essentially a term to refer to the churches in the in the in the first century that we read about in the New Testament, how did they operate how you know how how was their leadership? Um, you know, how, how did how did everything happen? You know, if you were to visit a, a church in the first century, what did you see? Uh, not just in one meeting, but from week to week. So after those two books, um, I knew that there would be many questions uh, about, well, okay, fine. I, I, I bought into this. Um, this confirms what I already know deep down inside. I just didn't have language to express it. Um, how do we plant such a church? How do we find such a church? <laughs> and so in 2009, I came out with two books. One was a, a, a missional book exploring the grand mission or eternal purpose of God called From Eternity to Here, and then following that was the Organic Church. So one of the reasons, one of the key reasons why I wrote it was to give the practical hows on how to actually <clears throat> experience body life or a church life like i had envisioned and, and barn and i had envisioned in pagan christianity and reimagining church the other reason is i wanted to answer many questions that that i've been asked about church planting because my views of of planting the church or i, I would i would like to say raising up the ecclesia are much different from you know what's being presented today about that whole topic and I also wanted to make a statement uh, about apostolic ministry and from from the scriptures. You know, what, where were the apostles exactly, and how did they operate, and what is the making of an apostle, and 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 what is their preparation, and so forth. And so, because I received so many questions about this, I wanted to put it in a book. Unfortunately, I guess this would be a fourth reason. Uh, Peyton, is, is that, you know, today there are a lot of church planting conferences for church planters, uh-huh. but very few, if any, I would say, to my knowledge, nobody who is invited to those conferences actually speaks about how churches were planted in the first century yeah. and why that's so important, not just from a theo- theoretical perspective, but from an experiential perspective. You know, a lot of the guys that I know who are on the ground in the trenches, you know, raising up the ecclesia uh, according to scriptural principles, um, they're never invited to these conferences. And so, a lot of the young guys who go to these conferences, and and the women and so forth who attend these things, looking for answers, they're only hearing sort of one paradigm. They're they're hearing one side of the conversation, and they and and. And they they learn to read the New Testament through a grid, um, through a 21st century Western business model grid. Even though it's cloaked in religious language, it's hard to see some of the things that that were really going on in the first century and why they're so important today. Because of that grid, so I felt you know as a fourth reason, I have a heart for young men who are called by the Lord. Um, I have nothing against young women who are called by the Lord, it's just not my particular calling to, to work with them, um, but I believe there are female apostles, and I believe there are female church planters, but my heart, my specific burden is for young men who God is raising up, and so I wanted to put something in their hand to say, hey, take a look at a different way of raising up the Ecclesia from, from what you're used to hearing. Uh, and so that was that was another reason. So that's the long answer to your short question.
2: <laughs> Man, Frank, it's like you're bald, you're beautiful, and it's like you're my long lost twin. It, like everything you <laughs> said, this is why this book resonated with me. And Pete Pete will know because on often on the podcast, I'm I'm bemoaning the fact that that the church planters conferences are often just reiterating the way that it isn't going to keep working in America. It's not working hmm. now. And wow. after being in Europe, you know, I I, I I had to relearn ministry from the ground up being over there where basically everything I had had learned in American church did not work on the frontline postmodern, post-Christian uh, fields of Europe. So uh, I, I found myself looking at the book of Acts a lot more. And since okay. I've come back to America, it's kind of like getting off the DeLorean. And saying, hey, we gotta go back to the future man we you know we gotta you know we're we're trying to prep leaders for the future by telling them you know what's already failing, and so I don't know, man, you just everything you're saying is exactly uh what I can see, so I don't know, man, maybe we need to have a west uh west coast East Coast tag team and do a conference somewhere <laughs> and uh dream one up well sign me up sign me up. <laughs> be happy to. What, you know did, Now, the book is called Finding Organic Church, and I know that you had uh, another book on it, but, but what exactly is organic church?
3: This is a great question. In 2009, I was still using the term. It's shorthand for organic expression of the church, which is a phrase I've been using since the 1990s. Um, I started m- gathering with a, a church in a very simple way. Uh, in 1988, there was no clergy, there was no pastor, and we were basically on a collision course uh, to encounter Jesus Christ, not just individually but corporately, uh, like, like I never had in my experience, and, and, and the same is true for the saints who had met together during those years. And we began to realize that the way of gathering that we had experienced was not only different from the traditional way of doing church uh, in every way from beginning to end, but it actually mapped to the New Testament. And so we began to read the New Testament in a brand new way and see what was hidden before. It really, I call it the hidden obvious. You know, once you see it, it's plain as the nose on your face, but it's been hidden for so long because we we do learn to read the New Testament through a grid. Anyway, uh, the organic expression of the church to define it simply, is a group of people who are learning to live by the indwelling life of Christ. They're learning to share that life together, and they're learning to express that life visibly. And that's how I've always used the term organic expression of the church or organic church. It's a throwback to uh, T. Austin Sparks' use of the word. I think he's really the first person to coin the term uh and he lived in the in the in the early 20th century but um it's been hijacked since and it's been co-opted and basically today you hear organic church coming from all quarters of the christian spectrum and it, it it's been rendered meaningless mm. uh so i no longer use it, <laughs> well, it it's interesting uh, but that's because... what it is
2: I've read other books that have "organic church" in the title, and you put a real unique spin on it. What I loved about and and it it made the most sense out of anyone who's ever used that term, because what you keep hitting on in the book is you're saying, look, Paul planted these churches. They were young, they were immature, but they had spiritual life. An organic church is something that grows irrespective like y- you would have to do something to stop it and mm-hmm. if you leave it alone it grows on its own and so i loved the spiritual connection of the holy spirit at work in the church that's another thing you don't hear a lot of times in, in when guys are talking it's methods it's you know marketing it's and you're like no yep. you know that paul didn't do any of that it was purely holy spirit stuff and um and i love that because it was a term, of, I would say, for the first time, even reading whole books with the term organic church, it was the first time that I went, I get it. I get this term. So it's interesting mm-hmm. it's saying that.
3: Yeah, it really comes down to life. You know, you plant a seed and it grows as long as you water it and fertilize it and you keep the weeds out. Um, that seed has the DNA for the expression of the ecclesia. And, you know, what we have on the earth today that we call church, you know, it, it really, when you do sit down, it's more of a business model, and it's it's more of a corporation kind of idea, um, even in the way it operates. Uh, it's so different from, you know, the Ecclesia that we read about in the New Testament, which really was a group of people who were living by a life not their own. It was divine life, and, and one of the, the central messages of the New Testament Uh, And it's not forgiveness of sins, as wonderful as that is. It's not redemption, as wonderful as that is. It's not making the world a better place, uh, which is a good thing to try to accomplish. It is that the God of the universe has now come to dwell in mere mortals. And not only does he dwell in us, but we have been given the privilege and the right to the glorious right and the ability to live by his life. You know, Mm -hmm. one of the most powerful things in the New Testament that Jesus ever said, and and that really fleshes out everything else he said was, you know, as the Father has sent me, I live by the Father. I mean, that was the secret of his amazing life. He lived by a life not his own. Remember, he said, I cannot do, the Son of Man can do nothing of myself. I can't do anything of myself. I live by the Father. So, as the Father has sent me and I live by the Father, turned around and said to his disciples, So you, so he, so she who eats me, who consumes me, who partakes of me, shall live by me. And Paul echoes that in Galatians where he says, It is not I who live, but Christ who lives through me. Well, this business about living by an indwelling Lord. Living by the indwelling life of Christ is the the core, the seed of the church. That's where the church comes from. That's what the ecclesia is in the first century. That's what it was. Everybody understood that that this was a people who lived by a life not their own. And yet today, how, how often do you hear people talking about that? Or they may mention, oh, you know, Christ dwells in you. Yeah, good, great. Let's go on to other things. But to talk about how to live by his life and how to live by his life corporately together with others, that you're you're talking about a whole nother universe. And yeah. you know, that's been my practice and that's been my pursuit, and that's what I've been engaged in, you know, for over over two decades, and therein lies, at least from God's perspective, from what we see in the New Testament, therein lies the root and the branch of church planting.
2: Hmm. Mm-hmm. That's good and you know I love the quote in the book we were talking about the gospel you're you're going into this is a piece of brilliant writing the gospel that the first century apostles preached was one of Christ's lordship and God's pure and unfailing grace in him Paul of Tarsus for example did not forge people together with rules religious duty or legalism instead he preached a gospel of grace so high and so powerful that it kicked down the gates of hell setting the Jew free from religious duty And the gentile free from immorality his was a double-barreled two-fisted gospel that was rock and roll man that's hot stuff
3: (laughs) well it's true and you know today we still have the jew and the gentile on the planet and i'm not just speaking culturally or by ethnicity but we have christians who are the equivalent to first century jews and that they're very legalistic, you know, they're very into good works, and they measure their acceptance by God via their works. Uh, and they tend to be very judgmental of other Christians who are not, you know, towing the line like they are. And then you have the equivalent uh, in, in, in the Christian world now of, of first-century Gentiles. And these are the ones that, you know, we're under grace, so <laughs> God loves us. It doesn't matter what we do. Um, and they don't want to hear anything about obedience or submission to the Lord because we're under grace. And it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that Paul Tarsus preached that is so, it's high octane, so much so that it blows the soot out of both those other two gospels, legalism and libertinism, and Christians need to hear, rehear this gospel that Paul preached. And what I, what I say in the book, and you, you know this because you've read it, but what I find fascinating and this has been a guiding light of my own life and ministry for the last 25 years. Paul can go into a city where there are, you know, Gentiles galore, drinking blood out of skulls, swapping wives, and doing all the things that Gentiles did in that day. Uh, not only that, but the, most of them are illiterate. L- illiteracy is running at 90%. Um, and he preaches this message. Uh In a short space of time now, he would only spend, on average, Peyton, three to six months in a city. He preaches this message to these kinds of people, with a few Jews sprinkled in that have ears to hear. And then he leaves them on their own, without elders, without a pastor, without any human headship or administration at all. He leaves them totally on their own, and he doesn't come back sometimes for a year, sometimes for two years, and there they are. Yes, they have problems. Yes, they've experienced crisis, but they're still meeting together. Now, that's the kind of gospel I'm interested in. That's the kind of gospel I've been seeking to find out what on earth did Paul preach, okay? And that's the kind of gospel that we need to return to today.
1: Mm. I got a question for you, Frank. I... um. I actually picked up your book on uh, Audible and was listening to it uh, this past week while I've been driving. And And by the way, just to put a little uh, little wind in our pirate sails, everyone can get a uh, free trial to Audible at audibletrial.com forward slash CPM. Got to do our own little uh, ad in there and pick up Frank's book for free when you do that, free for 30 days. And one of the things that really um, captured my attention was, I, I mean, the first chapter of your book is just loaded. With uh, with church planning goodness in it, and the summary I thought was outstanding, especially when you you broke down what you just covered in the chapter on the four church planning models in the uh, the early church in the the book of Acts. Can you expand on those models and kind of share that with people? Because I thought that was such a just a a key area that totally captivated me when I was listening to the book.
3: In the New Testament, we see uh, envisioned four different ways in which the ecclesia was raised up, and these constitute consistent patterns, um, especially uh, one of them in particular. The first one is what I call the Jerusalem model, and that's when the first church ever raised up uh, occurred uh, of course, the beginning chapters of Acts in the city of Jerusalem. And there you had multiple a uh, multiple number of church planters, uh, a la apostles, a la Christian workers, who were in the city of Jerusalem for about four years was the time frame. And they spent that time laying a rock-solid foundation for the first church on the planet. And, you know, we can talk about the different ways they did it, but... When that period of time was over, uh, we know the story, the church scattered and multiplied all throughout Palestine. And this gives us a model of a group of apostles raising up a church, a single church, and then having that church uh, migrate to other cities. Now, of course, in that situation, they were forced to do that. Nevertheless, we have a a principle of the church being raised up and then transplanting and multiplying in other places. The second um, way that the ecclesia was raised up in the first century is what I call the Antioch model. And this is the classic way of church planting. And Roland Allen, in his book, Missionary Methods, points out to a fault that the way that Paul raised up the church ought not to be dismissed, it ought not to be ignored, and it ought not to be rationalized away as something that was archaic uh, because it belonged to the first century. He found that Paul's method of raising up the church was in fact tied to, to divine principles and therefore timeless, and I believe
2: that as well. Can can I just come in real quick and just quote? I mean, I read that book, but you end like like Pete said. You end chapter one with this quote uh, from that book. It says, "Today, if a man ventures to suggest there may be something in the methods by which Saint Paul attained such wonderful results worthy of our careful attention and perhaps of our imitation, he is in danger of being accused of revolutionary tendencies." All I can say is, this is the way of Christ and his apostles. If any man answers, that's out of date or times have changed. I can only repeat, this is the way of Christ and his apostles, and leave him to face that issue. <laughs> right. That's right. The, he
3: pulls no punches, and he basically says, this is the way of Jesus Christ. This is the way of the apostles. And I agree with that, because when you, when you delve deeper the way that the churches were raised up in the first century, which I'll continue in a minute, it, it wasn't tied to the culture. You know, it's not like togas and sandals and koinony Greek, koine Greek you know, we're saying we've got to go back to an archaic way of doing things. No. <laughs> Those ways of raising up the ecclesia are actually rooted in the Godhead before time. Mm. Okay? They're timeless. And they map not to culture, uh, but they map to the teachings of Jesus Christ and the apostles. And what we have today is we have a lot of confusion because people will say, okay, well, you know, we live in the 21st century, things are different, so we have to do things differently. Well, to a degree that's true, but when it comes to the actual principles, the divine principles by which God Himself operates by; those things changeeth not. And if we start messing with those, and then we actually uh, forfeit those, in, 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 with respect to or in preference to embracing 21st century Western business models, well, who, who are the ones who are basically uh, adapting to culture? You know, it's us when we when we throw out the timeless principles of Scripture for, you know, what seems to work in the 21st century. And, you know, I, I, I question how, how well they're really working. Um, so, and that's what Roland Allen, Allen pointed out. He says if you want to have apostolic results, you, we need to follow apostolic methods. So getting back to the second way of planting the Church in the, in the Scripture, and you see this everywhere, beginning with Acts 13 on, was the Antioch model, and this is where Paul, Tarsus, and he would have you know companions go with him and coworkers at different times, would go into a city, would raise up a church, um, and would spend a short period of time with them. Now, usually it was because he got run out of town. So, for him, it was three months to three to six months on average. In Corinth, he spent eighteen months; in Ephesus, he spent three years. But it was a short period of time, and he would lay the foundation of that church, he would teach God's people how to know the Lord uh, after he brought them to Christ, and then he would teach them how to take care of one another, and he would teach them how to function without a human head. And then he would leave without ins- installing elders, without you know ordaining anyone, uh, certainly not a pastor, uh, and these, these basically, th- these churches were communities without a clergy. And they operated and they functioned, and they would come back later to nurture the church, encourage it, or deal with any problems. So that's the Antioch principle. And that, gentlemen, is unheard of today in practice.
2: It, um, except and in yet, Long Beach, California.
3: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Indeed. Well, that's great. that's great to hear. Well, The people <laughs> who are doing this uh, are rarer than chicken molars. Let's put it that way. But they are doing it, and they do exist. And this is the way of Paul Tarsus. Now, the third way of planting the church was, to me, pure genius. And we see the first seed of it in Galilee when Jesus himself took uh, 12 men, uh, and he had some women as well, probably around eight, and he basically spent most of his time with the 12 and with these women, and he trained them, in effect, to take his place, meaning to carry on the work that he started, okay? Well, what Paul Tarsus did later in his life is he duplicated what happened in Galilee, and he did it in Ephesus. And he took called men from the churches in the Gentile world that he had planted, he invited them to go with him to Ephesus, And he raised up a church before their eyes in Ephesus with them there with him, and he trained them just as Jesus trained the twelve. And then after that period of time, which for uh, Paul was three years in Ephesus, he laid hands on them and he sent them out. And they planted churches all throughout Asia Minor. And so what he did is he duplicated what Jesus did in training of the 12. He did it in Ephesus. And so here again we have a third way of raising up the church. It is the Ephesian model, and this is where a a church planter who is now grown old, he doesn't have much time left on the earth, he knows he's going to pass the baton, he brings with him the fruit of his labors, those who are called, to the work of raising up the ecclesia, to a city, on site, Hands-on, he shows them how it's done, and then he sends them out. And then the fourth kind of uh, a fourth way of planting churches that we see in the New Testament is the Roman model, and this is uh, depicted to us in the book of Romans. When you read the very last chapters, you find that Paul knows virtually all the people in the church in Rome, and he greets them by name, and they're coming from all different places. And so some scholars have theorized, and I believe this is true, that what he ended up doing was he wanted to raise up a church in Rome. So he sent people from different churches to that one city and Mm -hmm. they formed the nucleus of the church. So it's the opposite of the Jerusalem model. The Jerusalem model, you raise up a church and then from that church after a period of time, the church scatters and multiplies. This is where they're already scattered, but you bring them all to one city
2: to start a new church. So this is where my mind was blown. Because the other three models, it's funny, you know, I, for number of years, you know, 12 years overseas, I will, and then I moved back here for another three years, Antioch model guy. And come last January, I felt the Lord moving my heart differently, not realizing at that time that it was time for me to. To take up an Ephesus model, still carving up like Paul did out of Ephesus. You you pointed out not only the seven churches of Asia, but a couple other churches that that Paul uh, had a hand in during that time, which was an eye opener to me. You know, I'd always assumed it was the seven churches, but um, you demonstrate that. It's one of the great things, Frank, about reading your books is there's not a lot in your research that seems left to guesswork. I mean, you really do your homework. That always impresses right. me. Biblically, I see things, and I'm like, "Everyone's just going to copy this guy because he has done thorough, thorough research on this biblically." And then, um, Mm. because I'm definitely going to copy you, but uh, (laughs) but but here's the thing: is that uh, when you came to the fourth uh, way, Romans has always been kind of something I've scratched my head. So, what exactly was going on in Rome? Mm. I mean, Paul hadn't been there yet. I, I have to say that's where my jaw hit the floor. No exaggeration. I, I, I It was awesome for me and what I do to see. And that this is the point you make, is that he sends 26 individuals, or at least he greets 26 individuals in five households. Mm-hmm. But you mentioned, I'll, I'll let you talk about it, about Claudius uh, lifting the ban on the Jews. Yeah, and what yeah. What his strategy was. And I had never ever heard that. And I was like, that is rock and roll. So hit us with that, man.
3: Well, it makes sense, you know, because he was, he was eager to see a church raised up in that metropolitan city. And when the ban lifted, you know, the light was green. And so he had it in his heart to see that church raised up and he did it from a distance. And then, you know, of course, um, history says he went there. But when he wrote the Book of Romans, he hadn't been there, but he knew all of them. And, uh, of course, the the Jews and the Gentiles in the church were having a food fight and other such things. So that's partly why he wrote the letter, but he reintroduced the gospel to them all. And therefore, that was the provocation of that wonderful book that we have, the Book of Romans. Uh, Interestingly, there's only several books that Paul wrote to churches that he had never seen. Mm. One is Romans... The other one is Colossians, and the other one um, is Ephesians. Even though Ephesians, he was in Ephesus, most scholars will say that, you know, to the church in Ephesus was not in the original. Many believe that was a circuit letter to all the churches in Asia Minor. And what's fascinating about that is in those three letters, because he wasn't there, okay, beforehand... In those three letters of Ephesians, Colossians, and Romans, we have the clearest look at what Paul would have preached to a new group of Christians. Mm -hmm. And if you really get a good understanding of what he's saying in Ephesians, particularly the first three chapters, what he's saying in Colossians, which is just simply stunning, the first two chapters, first three chapters, and what he's saying in Romans— that gospel is so glorious that mm. one can understand how a group of young uh immoral pagans could have their lives transformed in such a way that he could walk out the door and leave them alone for a year or two and come back and they're still there it it's was that
2: powerful it's interesting because it goes back to what you said earlier just as you're saying that i'm thinking Gosh, yeah, Ephesians, you know he's writing to them about how they are the temple, and Christ is in them. and that goes back to what you're saying earlier about that was his major message, so I'm seeing that connection big time His message,
3: Christ the head, and Christ the body, and it all flowed out of his uh, his encounter in Damascus because that's who he saw. He saw the head, Jesus speaking to him and course, the whole context was, why are you persecuting me? He saw the body. And that was his message, and then he ties that into God's eternal purpose, uh, which is really the theme of Ephesians. So yes, uh, these these four ways of church planting are ways that can be experienced today. I say that from personal, firsthand witness. uh, And to my mind, they are not only rooted in the triune God even before time, because, you know, as I point out in the book, the Christian life, uh, the community of the believers, the ecclesia, and even the raising up of the church can be traced back to that fellowship and communion in the Godhead. Not only is that true, but I believe that these ways are far superior than what's on the earth today. Now, of course, if people wanna produce a business like church, then you know this is not the best way to go. What's being right. promoted today you know, in church planting circles from church planting experts and so forth, then that's the way to go. Uh, as I shared with you earlier, you know, what I'm talking about is akin to talking about Eastern medicine practice to people who are used to hearing only Western medicine practice. So the context is totally different. Uh, So I would say if you're looking for an institutional church, you know, a la clergy building, you know, services where the laity is passive and, you know, the professionals perform, this is not the way to go. But if you're looking at a kind of church life that we envision in the New Testament where the ministry is in the hands of all of God's people, where Jesus Christ is the practical head of the church, not just the theoretical head done, this is the way it's done, and this is the way it was done, and I think that um, we'd be wise to return to it.
2: Yeah, a lot of the way that we're doing church today is is a lot like the Old Testament concept of idolatry, where you take an idol of stone and you say, this is God. And I think what we've done a lot is we've transferred this is Christianity or this is God into a service, an inanimate object, and said, this is this is the acting and working of God. And I, you know I read a quote um, online w- that said, "Life change doesn't happen in rows. it happens in circles." And so the idea of the living God being in my living room, in the people I'm looking at, drinking coffee with, life change, transformation, all that happening, that's the gist, and that's what the early church actually experienced. Wow, that was from emphasis. Yeah. Did you? Did you
3: know, <laughs> yeah, I'm hearing it. Wow, the gods are on your side, sir. Very good. That happens when well, I make awesome. heavy points a lot. <laughs> Either that, or you hear thunder from the sky, right?
2: Yep. <laughs> Normally, that.
3: Yeah. Very good. Well, you know, it's it's staggering to to read First Corinthians fourteen. That has been um, sort of a, a, a cherished text in my own life. Um, in, in 14, in, in, around about verse 26, where he's he's depicting how the early Christians met together, and he says, you know, when you come together, every one of you have a psalm, every one of you have a revelation, a word of knowledge, a prophesy, and then he goes on, he says, let all things be done unto edification, so, you know, it's, it's, it's not a chaotic but it is a meeting where everyone is participating and everyone is functioning, and then he says if you all prophesy, meaning if you all speak Jesus Christ the unbeliever can walk into your midst, fall down on his knees and say God is among you Mm -hmm. and that to me is the landmark of the life of God being expressed through a group of people. Notice he didn't say if someone hears a great sermon he's going to fall down on his knees. Now that could happen yes, but He's talking about a meeting where Jesus Christ is speaking through the body. And for that to happen, and it was happening in the first century, every member was functioning. They were all prophesying. And I have seen that happen with my own eyes. And I'll tell you what, it wrecks you for anything else. Yeah. You know, the the most glorious sermon ever preached cannot trump a group of Christians who had been drunk on Jesus Christ, intoxicated with him, and are now sharing him together in a gathering, that will, that will absolutely trump any, any sermon you will ever hear the greatest sermons. But most Christians have never even seen something like that. And this gets back to the role of the church planter from, from a New Testament perspective. It was his job to equip the believers— on how to actually do that, on a how to actually meet that way. And one of the tests that I've had, and in, in just in conversations, you know, I don't do this in a, in a challenging way, but in conversations I've had with people who claim to be church planters and all, I have said, can you, with your present congregation that you are, are raising up and that you're teaching and so forth, can you say to them, uh, next month I'm going to walk out of here, and I'm not going to see you for a year. Mm. And while I'm gone, I'm not going to install any elders. There's not going to be a pastor. Nobody to take my place. I want you to take everything I taught you about living the Christian life, about taking care of one another, about functioning as a priest, a la the priest of all believers, and I want you to start meeting together, and then I will see you in a year. My question to them is, how long will they survive? How long will they last? Mm. How long will time go by before they start killing one another <laughs> or, <laughs> or dissolving into dust? You know, how long or how long will there be before a clergy begins to erect itself and the overfunctioners and the dominant personalities take over? And the question really is making a point that mm. if we can't do that, then we can't claim to be church planters in the first century meaning of the word. Now, yeah, you can use that term, but I'm talking, I'm I'm using the grid and the measure and the standard and the understanding of what the first century was when it came to raising up the Ecclesia, uh, being a a first century Christian worker. And and not only that, but, you know, Peyton, there's, and and you know this, but there's a lot of people who suffer from what I call apostolitis. Uh, they see that, that the apostle, you know, there's some passages in the first century you know, to say, you know, he's called apostles to be first. Yeah. So they see that, and they get, you know, they get all jazzed about, well, I'm that's me, I'm called to be an apostle, I'm called to be a church planner. But actually miss what it takes to prepare such a person, mm-hmm. and the unspeakable agonies of being broken, and the unspeakable, horrendous experience of being vilified and attacked and all the things that happened for the first century apostles, where Paul can say, we are the dregs of the earth, we're the scum of the earth, you know, and in the world's eyes, we're last, we're not first. Um, You know, so it, it kind of turns the pyramid upside down. And I have often said this, that, you know, when it comes to church planting, again, I'm looking at it through a New Testament perspective now. I'm looking at it from, from what we see in, in the first century, in, in the words of Paul, etc. Um, nobody who's called to raise up the church wants the job. In fact, if it was up to them, brother, they would drop it in a second, yeah. because it is the most difficult thing that a human being can engage in on this planet.
2: Yeah. And and this is this is what the book really goes into is not only the preparation of uh, the the planter but also it does answer the question what in the heck did Paul teach them how did he train these churches to stand on their own for three to four months in other words you don't just leave it like hey you know like three to four months you know hey go <laughs> chew on that for a while you actually take. Uh, this is what Paul did, and and for me that was greatly enlightening because I've often asked that question, uh, you know, w- w- how did he do that? What did he do? And of course, you learn, I suppose, by uh, over the years. You you have to unlearn a lot of what you've come from. I think for for the, yeah. those, those of us that trained up in the West, and so you you go into this kind of weird period where it's like a hybrid. You're still doing the old stuff and doing the new stuff as you're figuring it out, and the Holy Spirit's being gracious and letting you chunk it up and make mistakes. But eventually you come to that place where you say, I know what leads to transformation now. It's been trial and error. I've been doing mm-hmm. this for, for a while now, and I get it. And all the stuff I once valued in ministry, uh, mm-hmm. now I don't value it all. And mm-hmm. it flips it on its head. And, and I, I, love, I would love for people to grab this book, go on that journey with you, and learn you know what are the things that they need to be doing when Paul says I laid that foundation like a wise and master builder or an architect as you point out Um, you know that he architects the church and he leaves them to build it and to get on with it that was powerful
0: yeah
3: well that's why I spend so much time on the preparation you know um, I think somewhere in there I said something to the effect that many men went, but few were sent. And, you know, when we talk about the first century uh, apostolic ministry, there are three parts to it. One is the calling. Uh, And I believe that God has called uh, many, many people to this work, respectively speaking, you know, given how many people are on the planet. Um, You know, in the first century, you know, Jesus had 12 I'm talking about the apostolic ministry now, not being a disciple. You know, every Christian is called to be a disciple. But uh, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, are all apostles? Well, no, not all are apostles. Thank God all are not apostles. <laughs>
0: um,
3: and, and you know, the point being is that um, many are called, but so many, I believe, Peyton, confuse that calling to what they already know, or all they already know. And all they already know are, well, you know, if I'm called to the Lord, then here are my options. I can be a pastor, or I can be a missionary, or I can be, you know, a music leader. Mm-hmm. And they don't really know anything else. And that's because of, you know, the knowledge is limited as to what, what God has called into place in His body in terms of function. Then, the, after the calling, is the my point there is that I think many pastors, not all, certainly not all, but I think many pastors um are actually called to the apostolic work. They just don't know it. Yeah. Um because all they know is the pastorate, right? Yeah. Um and the um the second part of it I think is probably the most important and that is the preparation. And this is the this is the part that I think, you know, A, most Christians don't understand and then B, um, most Christians, short-circuit, short, short circuit, you know what I mean? It, a shortcut around it. And then the third one is descending. Um, and ascending is hugely important. And that's not just ascending by the Lord. It is ascending either by a, a local body of believers, a local ecclesia uh, who know the individual inside and out, um, who have seen his, his life, Uh, who, you know, knows his eccentricities as well as his strengths uh, and knows that God has called uh, that person to the work, Uh, either they're sent by a local fellowship or they're sent by an older apostolic worker. This is the pattern we have in the first century. So, you know, those three points, those three aspects to the apostolic ministry or the ministry of church planning, calling, um, preparation, and sending, are hugely important, and that's why much of the book is, is written uh, about that aspect.
2: Yeah, and you know, just to to kind of um, just really uh, leave people with something that I think will make them hunger for this. When you know, going back to what you had said earlier about the four types, um, again, it was a new model. I'm in the Ephesus mode right now. This is a new new gig for me. But I can see the power of, I always thought that's kind of where Paul ended up. Like that was in game, you know, for him as I'll I'll do this third model and this is how I'll, um, you know, I'll kind of end my days. And for me, seeing Rome now, how he did Rome and mm. realizing if we get to that point as a church, it, to me, that was the major revelation. And for me, it's almost kind of seeing my goodness. I thought Paul was brilliant in Ephesus, but but he's really <laughs> amazingly brilliant in in Rome. It's taken things to a new level. It's kind of like, you know, that that old movie with Richard Dreyfus, his Magnum opus. It was as, I mean, just seeing him mm. mobilizing people from all of his different church plants to come together to penetrate the city, Rome of all places. Yeah. It's just So if you guys can pick this book, I'm not saying if you can, I'm saying, you know, it's like Spurgeon said, man, sell all you have and buy this at once. Grab (laughs) this book, Finding Organic Church. You guys know I love books, but um, I I will give this my strongest recommendation. It will definitely be on our next uh, Church Planner, Master Church Planner Library. And uh, we will probably review this in future in Jump School as well. So uh, guys, thanks for tuning in today and Frank it has been an absolute joy to have you on the show man as usual thanks for coming on well it's my
3: pleasure um, I'm really you know humbled that you have felt so strongly about the book but I'm excited about it because I wrote it for individuals such as yourself and I would say to for the listeners you know, for me, a lot of my frustration has been over the years, because I'm a reader as you are, is that many of the books that have impacted me, you know, I can't talk to the authors because they're dead. You know. Uh, <laughs> I can't talk to Roland Allen, I can't talk to T. Austin Sparks or A. W. Toes or any of these guys. But I want your listeners to know that if they want to contact me about this book, either to ask questions or gripe and complain, uh, I'll take either. They can contact me on my website, frankviola.org. The comments are open, and they can contact me via email through the contact page or just put a comment in the comment section. Uh, I'd be happy to dialogue. So um,
2: I just want you you all to know that. Absolutely. So you can go to
1: frankviola.com. Or you can O-R-G, ask for buddy Yeah, go You're, ahead, Pete. <laughs> you aren't paying attention. It's frankviola.org, not .com. Oh. Yeah. Thank you, Pete. Uh,
3: ORG is good. If they go to com, they will they'll, they'll can find me through that too. But ORG is the blog. That's where I'm most so, active.
2: So. so they won't end up with the baseball player then? <laughs> no, no, problem. they won't. <laughs> <laughs> Or, right? or you can write us and ask us for uh, Frank's phone number, and we'd be happy <laughs> to <give you> that. <laughs> Yes,
3: correct. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs>
2: hey, this has been the Church Planner Podcast, reminding you if you want to reach the ones nobody's reaching, you need to go where nobody's going and do what nobody's doing.